Well, the Anne Sullivan Centre is about seven years old and it was uh, founded by a very concerned group of parents originally called, I think, the Rubella Association Um, and alongside uh, very concerned parents and indeed the Dominican nuns, Sister Nicholas and Sister Ursula in particular, were very instrumental in developing the Anne Sullivan Centre and ensuring that there's an educational input that it wasn't developed as simply a caring facility or a, uh, an institution or a home where they could just live. It was an institution with a very strong, and still is, very strong educational input with the aim of developing as full independence for our residents or students, really, as we call them. Students because we consider they're still learning, they're still making progress. And that's ongoing and it's a home for life and we travel along that road with our students and hope to, say, develop more and more further independence. And in in assisting us with that, the health boards have provided, say, funding for the day-to-day care of, of, of the students in the maintenance area and in paying for staff. So we'd have a quite a high staff ratio um, we aim to have one-to-one, one staff per student. And again, it's the idea is to have supported living, to encourage each individual student to develop to their full potential, to do as much as they can for themselves independently. And the staff then is trained to um, acknowledge that independence, to give the student enough t- time and space to attempt uh, new experiences and new activities and to distance themselves then as much as possible in, um, say, giving that student their, their, their space. Altogether in the Anne Sullivan Centre, we have nine students or residents. Uh, their ages range between age 23 and 30. And they've been here with us for the six, seven years, so they came as as late, in their late teens, more or less. Um Five, five of our residents are male and four are female. Now, Fiona, what now, Fiona? What now? Yeah? Mm-hmm. And she puts the stopper in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'll try and get her to turn the tap. That's it. Good girl. Now. Good. Mm-hmm. And she puts her cleaning jar in, her cleaning liquid, and she smells it. It's a lemon citrus smell for her basin. She turn off the tap. She has um, the main activity of the day on each board. Each board, each day has a different board. Um, the important things are made as tactile as possible so that you are isolating a certain feature in the activity. Say, for instance, here, um, the the tactile piece of J-cloth is the cleaning day activity, and that is on top of contact. Uh, So, therefore, the contact has hardly a feel to it, but definitely the J-cloth does. And then there's other pieces of Velcro to put her symbols on, her modelling clay symbol on, which is very tactile, it's, it's a piece of hard clay and um, there's a little miniature body on it because she makes a miniature body with the modelling clay.
So we have to identify um, different symbols that really are associated with the activity so that they are more meaningful. There's no point in, in giving modelling clay and um, introducing a symbol that has nothing got to do with the activity. She has to use something that's in the activity as a symbol. And then the spoon then here is velcroed um, to, to the board for, for lunch. And again, she uses a spoon for lunch. So that would definitely have... Um, the, the connection there would be very, very important. And if Fiona then will go on to more... She's nearly ready for very symbols like this in a more abstract formation. Say, for instance, we have neoprene and we will um, cut out the shape of a spoon and it won't be the real spoon, but it will symbolise the spoon in the shape. And so we, it, that's at the last meeting, tea meeting we had, we discussed this, that she's really well able for the next step for one or two of her, of her um, symbols. So, which is terrific. She has already been introduced to this type of symbolisation um, for the last only a week, because before there, then she had boxes, and so we felt definitely she was ready for the board. Each symbol had its own box, which was very concrete, and it, she was getting a, a, um, a less patient at her de- at the on the chair and all the rest. And we looked at it and we observed it. And we thought that she was bored with this representation. So now she's really back to concentrating again, and she loves the new. She's accepted it very well, and we feel, you know, definitely her sequence, her memory has, you know, developed qu- quite a bit. And also her her realisation of her, her day, that uh, the difference between day and night, loads of activity during the day, and she's not resting as much during during the day, that the afternoons now are rest and she's sleeping much better at night time. This is her conversation with me, what she's doing and how she's getting on. So this was your cleaning job and she puts it into the finish box. Good. Now, cleaning job is finished. Yes. Now, we ask... What now, Fiona? Go to your symbol, yeah. That's it. It's modern. Well done. And she just puts that back. That's grand. Now, well done. Now, you stand up. Mm-hmm. And then she goes off to do her next activity. Okay. Thomas, is, uh, his condition is through rubella. I took... Um, Rebella, when I was expecting him, I was only about... I didn't know I was pregnant at all. When he was born, he had his sight in 1A up till he was 10-year-old, and he he lost it when he was 10. When he lost his sight, he was in St Joseph's, and when then he went to um, the Anne Sullivan Centre in 98. And from there, he seems to have... Just been working on something the similar program that he'd been on St Joseph for the school then, if it's concerned, and then they're trying to they're training him to live as independent. It's possible. He had full sign language, you know. You could carry on a conversation with him there in sign language, you know. Now he's <coughs> sign language for the deaf. You know, he had all the signs of sign language for the deaf, but now you can. The only way of corresponding is this touch, you know. 
you do the same thing to his hand, he'll do the same thing to your hand. He know exactly what you mean. And if he wants something, he'll do the same. He is saints for all those things, you know. And I suppose it's something that followed on that he'd have been fortunate for to have those signs before he uh, before he lost his sight, you know. Like other students up there may not be as fortunate maybe for to have those signs, you know. Be a lot harder for them, I suppose more so than it would be for him for to communicate with other people or with people at home, you know. He'll not carry on a conversation, you know, all the time with you. You know, if he needs something, if he wants something to eat or that, he'll sign, eat, and he'll head to the table. Or if he wants a cup of tea, he'll sign tea. Or, or where he's going to, when he when he's going to bed, he has to know where everybody is. Or is everybody else going to bed? Or when he's going away on a Monday morning to back to school, he's want to know where <coughs> his brothers and sisters or mother and father, <coughs> where, where they're going to be. When he's away, but for the, a full conversation, he'll not carry on. You know, he just do a few words and he'll finish at that. You know, so. but his communication is is good when he when he wants something really. But he'd have a great memory. He he knows through signs the days of the week, and he he'll not miss out one day. You know, from one day to the next, and about. He knows he goes to Anne Sullivan's Santa on a Monday and he comes home on a Friday and he's home to Saturday and he's home Sunday. If he goes, he can go to anybody's house and tell him where you're going to, you know, cousins or wherever. And he'll know when he gets to those houses, you know, like, and where the... Especially the ones that he knows, the houses, he would know where to go around them and get out... But if he, um, if memory is concerned, like, I mean, he's, you know, Christmas and Easter, and he knows when it's leading, nearly leading up to that day, what's going on around him, if you know what I mean. He, he would have a great sense of touch, because that's the way he identifies everything, through a sense of touch. He can know his own clothes by, which goes on first, whether it's his T-shirt or his jumper trousers, each thing he would know exactly what it was. He wouldn't put on, you know, he, everything goes on in, in order. She normally goes on the uh, slide here, and she's great on the bicycle, actually. She's very good steering. Uh, she's partially blind and partially hearing, but uh, at the same time, she still has her guidance and very, very strong as well. Balloons she loves, and especially red, yellow, bright colours. So we tend to get, actually, that's a good one, get a balloon and she'll play piggy in the middle and she runs around and chases us and stuff, has a great time. <laughs> she's very vocal, which she normally isn't. Um, and so she's kind of very independent this morning. Sometimes she'll run around and do her own thing, which she's kind of doing this morning. So she kind of, you know, keeps her distance, but then at the same time will interact, you know, at times. And then mostly she's very cooperative. She's great at cooking and laundry, hanging out washing, everything in the kitchen and stuff like this. She's very, very good at And uh, it's kind of co-active and then also independent. She'll do it also herself, you know. You don't have to kind of take her and show her. She'll automatically go and do things, you know.
Yeah, she's wonderful. <laughs> she's crazy. Being deaf and blind is a very unique disability. It's very different to being deaf and it's very different to be blind. Um, it's a dual sensory impairment and when both of your main senses are impaired to a very large extent, well, it, it, the outcome of that means that you have a distorted image both of yourself as a person, of the world around you, in other words, your environment. And, uh, for example, if you have a hearing impairment, well, of course, you can use your sight and use sign language and uh, have a very balanced view of the world and you can live a full and independent life and have developed very extensive communication skills. But when uh, when there's a severe disability in, in, in the hearing area and in, this, in, the, in the sight area, that uh, a different kind of approach must be used. So the approach that we would use comes from actually Professor Van Dyke, who did a lot of research universally. And we follow the, what we call the Van Dyke method. And indeed, a lot of our training programmes uh, occur in Holland, where we send staff over. But the main thrust of it would be to use um, tactile the touch, the sense of touch, to develop that, to use symbols uh, and signs to try to, to build up a, a communication technique. Uh, a lot, again, body language and facial expressions, and it, it's all part of it. And even though the students can't actually, you know, see the detail, uh, the relationship of staff and student is very important. Apart from the communication levels, so building up trust. And giving that student a sense of confidence would be a primary aim and uh, for the one-to-one, -one, the student-staff relationship. Where do we put this, Mary? This is her, one of her chores uh, every week that she does. And it's, it's taking the shopping in from the van and then opening everything and storing it all away, putting it all away neatly. And she helps... Oh, that's so funny. And she helps uh, put everything away, open them up, and then put all the rubbish in the bin. And uh, she's very, very good at it. She's great. She loves bursting open things. <laughs> now, little lady, look, open this one. Ready? Good girl, very good. Great stuff. She loves all the plastic and the packets, and, and it's great for her feel and touch and stuff like this also. Can I give you a hand? Okay, great, thank you. Great stuff. Good girl. Lovely, thank you. And it's very good for her to communicate with you and coordinate with things like handling stuff. And then Colm as well, he, he likes to feel things on the ground and put his hands down and be aware of what's around him also. Okay. Well, Colm is deaf-blind because when I was expecting him, he's a twin, um, I had rubella at, at the very beginning of the pregnancy, at about the third week. I mean, you know, it was so near the beginning that, that it's... Um, and we reckoned there would be some problems. Anyhow, he's deaf-blind, his twin is deaf. And 
from the beginning, you know, we needed to do a lot of things. Right. His viability, you know, was, was always in question. They told me, you know, he might have a limited lifespan. But now, thank God, he's 30 and he's quite a healthy little trout. He doesn't get too much, you know, he, he picks up very little, actually. Even things that are going, you know, he, he gets a chesty cold. That's the only thing he's anyway prone to. And he went to the Central Media Clinic for a while for physiotherapy to muscle development. Then the St John God's Brothers had him in Dunmore House where we got him walking and did a lot of work there. There were Down syndrome children with him there. And then the whole thing was to set up somewhere for deafblind. There was no centre for to educate deafblind in this country. And most particularly, there was nowhere which, which would provide a home for life because their expectancy, life expectancy now, with all the better care that they get, is much longer than it would have been 30, 40 years ago. And families can cope very well for a while, but the parents won't always be there. And that's the big worry that one has as one gets older. And no matter how willing their siblings are, they don't know how they'll be placed later in life. They don't know where they'll be, what families they'll have, or, or whatever. And, you know, you can't just sit back and say they'll look after them because that mightn't just be a possibility. So after a lot of pushing and shoving around all the usual uh, paths that one has to go, um, we set up the Anne Sullivan Centre. We raised the money to build it, um, having been given the land by the Catholic Institute for the Deaf, and set about staffing it. It's... It was all pushed and inspired by Sister Nicholas, who was, I mean, she was formerly principal in Cabra, but she also lectured in university, you know, for adults about deafness and that. And she was an inspiration. Um, and she was determined, you know, she knew professionally what she was about. She knew the possibilities because she'd been to Holland. She'd travelled a lot in the course of her work, so she knew what the possibilities were. And she was determined that they'd be available for the Irish deafblind children, as they would have been then. And it's going very well now, you know. It takes a little while to get set up and get well-staffed. And it, it is, you know, from the beginning there's been a lovely atmosphere there. And now we have them living in little houses. That's the ideal, to have them in small family-sized units, uh, which is their home. And then the centre will become the day centre, so to speak, where the activities will be, you know. Um, it probably wasn't nearly big enough, but you don't know that until you start. You think you have everything covered, um, but, you, but you have to keep going. This is Paul, okay? This is Paul Waters now. Paul, what are you going to do? You're going to do the, the, the circuit, okay? okay. The circuit. Okay. Now, now, Paul. Come on, Paul. Mm. Now. Come on. Come on, Paul. In, okay? Come What now, Paul? Over. Over. Good, Paul. Good, Paul. Mm. <laughs> what now, Paul? You just want to be left alone, don't you? Yeah. The, the use of language there, do we use in and over and all that sort of, Paul? kind of learn something from what he's actually doing like what's the purpose of him being out here in the open the grass the trees and all the landmarks and things like that um, you know and he's been doing it for a good few years he sometimes does it indoors as well so in the case of 
the tube here, he would sometimes go down on the ground and go through it. Slightly different than now, because when he's outdoors, obviously he can't lie on the ground because it might be wet or whatever. So it's kind of to distinguish between doing it outdoors and doing it indoors and climbing over it like he... He, it's, it's, it's main purpose as I see it. it's like it's out in the fresh air and the exercise which is what he needs a lot you know because of his, his physical his physique and that he needs it and you know it's, I suppose from a you know a sporting point of view as well that like you know he enjoys it you know you see me using the word in so I use a sign for in co-actively with his hands I use the word in two fingers into the left hand two index fingers meaning we're going into those little segments there and another one I used was over which is the right hand, arm over across the left arm and under is just the opposite, it's under I used it over there for the climbing frame and the one I used was step up there to get a step up onto the, the little the table and over there over, under, in and step up they were basically the four words I used there because that's all you need to use with Paul like, it's trying to keep language to a minimum as well to what he understands also because there's no point in using elaborate signs because he doesn't really understand elaborate signs so we keep it nice and basic small words and he understands in and he understands over because you see there when I went over there or I went under first he, he put his head down he understands that you know if I went under and he was just standing there it proves that he does understand basic language you know basic sign language you know and it's all the time with it's, uh, with the other students also it's always co-active you know you know and it, 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 it's, it's, an, it's an education I see this from well, you know I said it's from uh, his physical health is primarily I think the most but it's education for him also because we keep reinforcing the use of the same language over and over again and there's other words that he understands but for this particular exercise you only really need four in over under and a step up I work with the uh three of the students in that are, live in one of the community houses. Um, the three of them are... Uh, two would would be totally deafblind and one would lady would have residual and sight and hearing. Um, the, it was the first house that the Anne Sullivan Centre got uh, and set up. Uh, and so they were the first group to go out. It was like the... Uh, and see how well and how successful it was to be in a house situation, live, you know, outside of a residential centre. They would be higher in some regard functioning because of their signing level. Uh, Two of them would, uh, the greater um, understanding of sign language. If you think about it, like a baby growing up, like they, because they have their sight and their hearing, they pick up so much more, you know, from very early on, you're lying. Uh, you pick up so much more incidentally, you know. You you pick up the body language of your mother by seeing the, her smile. So, you know, are there, you know, that, and you can hear her talk and you can see that she's there. Whereas a deaf blind baby wouldn't know until you actually had the physical touch. So you don't have that incidental learning. You don't have all the things that that add on top and on top and top and top to just you know what's taking place. You have everything else that's that's going on um, with you. That even babies picking you know as children grow up they pick up from other children. So you would have that missing out with the deaf blind child sometimes that they might not relate to others because they haven't built up that trust. You know they haven't um, or they haven't learn how to they're not, they're not as, as social the communication 
is very insular. You know, they've they've only had themselves for a, a, a long time. They haven't been able to see what's out there. You know, you know, even in a family situation, a little uh, brother might learn from a big brother just by watching his relationship to someone else or watching how he would do things. So there's incidental learning where the deafblind would miss out on that. Um, you would have... Uh, you Things have to be done exactly at a point, like if you're, you know, where... It happens, you know, you can't teach about... You couldn't teach about dressing unless you were dressing. Whereas you could, with a normal child, you could talk about putting on your, your trousers or your shirt outside of the situation. You know, maybe when you're sitting there, um, you can talk. And they'll be able to, to, to see, say, when you're shopping, you can talk with a normal child about how you put your clothes on and whatever. But the, the deaf mind would have to do it exactly at the time because you couldn't take things out of the situation they're done in, in early development. And that would be quite a, um, um, a level, a higher level if they were able to, to communicate about it later. He, um, he seems very happy there, you know. But, uh, you know, he's in the, he lives along with a few people, you know, two other students in the house. That uh, they're all uh, within the same environment, you know, and they're inclined to be very happy people, you know. I suppose they have a different way. Us thinking of what they have, what they go through, you know, while they're there all the time, you know. You can just imagine if you couldn't hear or couldn't see, you know what I mean? But they still get on with life the same as anybody else. They all have their different jobs, different things to do. And... Uh, I suppose it's basically a routine for them, more so than anything else, you know. And I suppose the care staff that are there too, you know, the care staff would be very good, you know what I mean, very good with them and some very good uh, workers up there, you know. And it's a hard job working with them, you know. But then Thomas, he comes home every weekend, you know, he doesn't stay there all the time. You know, he comes home on a Friday evening and goes back here on Monday morning. and He's happy, it's just a routine for him to come and go that you know he'd look forward to getting home and he knows when going off Monday morning he knows when Friday is and he's coming home he can tell you before he goes he'll be back Friday you know and if you're up there you know we be up there at meetings in Dublin occasionally and you call and you always call there you know in the centre and in the house with the people mm-hmm. with the care staff and that and he'd always be fit to tell you that he's coming home Friday and he's happy for you to call and he doesn't pass any remarks. That's his routine, the same as anybody going to school or anybody going out to work, you know. We try every method, everything we can, anything that res- that the student responds to, well, we'll try and develop a programme around that and very much our um, very initial um, efforts, if you like, to develop communication would always be around the students' abilities, their likes and their dislikes. So naturally, staff have to be very observant in... Um, being aware of the response of the individual person to the activity. For example, um, the students that would have residual hearing respond normally very well to a sound perception programme. And that's a programme where we bring them through, a, a, say, a series of, of, of beats or music where the sound from the outside would be blocked out we put on, say, an uh, organ at a very high level. And there'd be 
one or two speakers, you know, strategically placed one possibly under their seat and one at their back. And uh, from there, they would develop a sense of rhythm and sound and get the vibration. And this would happen in a room with a wooden floor so that, say, the vibration can come up through the floor and uh, in through their upper body. And that's a way of introducing the world of sound to the deafblind person. And often we'd see uh, very positive responses and, and again in their facial expressions and maybe perhaps reaching out with their hand. They want more. Or another way would be to develop rhythm with a drum. And again, they can feel, put their hand on the drum and they can actually feel the rhythm. And again, a great sensitivity has to be brought in as uh, into the student taking the lead. So as a teacher or a care staff, the teacher must have very uh, fine-tuned observation skills in giving that student time to take in what they're hearing, giving them time to respond. And then when the student responds, that's the cue for the teacher or the care staff to give feedback and to develop an interaction. So the student is taking the lead. They're deciding when and if they want to respond and their staff then takes that cue and leads it on to the next step. This is, this is what we call sound perception. And so when the students come in here, we use them to bang on the drums, or maybe use the instruments to try and seek and they, they hear some sounds and, you know, gives them a different perception. So this is what this is encouraging, just to bang the drums are, as I said. Listen, we put the speaker on here and put the music on, and if they can dance around, if they can hear anything, I mean, it's a benefit. I mean, it means, or you might see your reaction. You know, if you see, you'll see a reaction in their eye, it means that they are hearing something, they are, you know, I mean, they are getting things through to them. So that's the, the whole idea of, of the drums and the, and the music set and that in here, you know, as well as exercise as well. If you can get them to move around or dance around, it's, it's great again, you know. So that's, that's what this is all about, you know. The drums will also obviously vibrate, I mean, and we, we sit them down on this bench here with the, which the speaker is resting on so they can also get that sensation of, the, you know, because that's obviously one of their senses that they still have is the, the feeling of touch and they can feel the, the, the vibration so they know as well as sort of, the, sort of where the sound, they know the sound is coming from somewhere and somewhere near them if they, if they can also feel it and if they can hear some of it as well. So that's the idea of having the, it so close and maybe putting the hand on it, you know, let them feel what they're banging for so they know. I mean, obviously, you know, if, if you're deaf or blind, it's, your touch is, is going to be your, you're going to rely on the, the, the sense of touch. So that's why they have them as well, you know. We have the, the head most, the ear most, sorry, and the, the blindfolds. And what we do is the signs that I know they've they spoke about the signs they use for everything, you know, for in here or out in the circuit. Well, we sign to each other with them on. So you're only you're relying on the signs that people are giving you, you know, using, as we said. And um, so it helps us to understand that, in other words, it helps us to make sure we sign properly because sometimes one sign can mean something. If you don't do it properly, it means something different to them. And, you know, you're signing to them and you're thinking, why aren't they doing it? Or, you know, but and so that helps us. When we can't see and we can hear them by using them. We, we know exactly what the sign is, and they'll say no. You know, so it helps us. That's that's the thing about that. Because obviously, if we can, if we don't use them, and we're just we're doing the sign between us, we we can use our sight so we can see sort of maybe what way they're trying it. We all like a cup of tea. We from a very young child to an older person will use a cup in their daily life. 
very young children will start using maybe tea sets and pretend games and know what a cup is for. So again, that's a, a very familiar routine, a very familiar, you know, uh, I suppose concept really to to a jumping off point as regards trying to symbolise the world of the deaf blind person. So again, um, just say taking the cup, we would um, offer a cup to a student if it was time, for example, a cup of tea or a break. And uh, the purpose would be that there'd be an understanding there that it was time for tea, time for a cup of uh, coffee and uh, give instead of just handing a cup to a deaf blind person that we try to develop an understanding beforehand of what's going to happen or what's next on their timetable. And again, after it could be a long period of time, if that student or resident uh, takes the cup and responds very positively and heads down towards the kitchen for that cup of tea, well, another programme then would be put in place to, say, develop the concept a little bit further and make it a bit more abstract. And how we'd go about that would be, again, with the student and individual needs are very much taken into consideration. With the student, we'd actually uh, break the handle off the cup. The handle is the identifying feature. And that's what makes a cup different from, uh, uh, say, a, a tumbler or a glass jar. The cup has a handle. Then the handle of the cup becomes the symbol for a cup of tea. And if you can imagine... Again, taking it a few steps further, that uh, ceramic handle can be developed further into into moulding it out of a piece of plastic. And out of these moulds or very abstract symbols, we can develop a communication system as in introducing a kind of a diary at the end of the day. Representations can be put into the diary where at the end of the day, a student or resident can um, open their book and reflect on the day's activities and they you know, can feel the handle of the cup and say oh, we had our cup of tea and after that we went swimming and perhaps feel an armband or a swimming hat and after that maybe we went on the bus and feel a miniature bus and after that maybe there could be a key of the door we went home and that's how we try to bring you know, the abstract world into the world of the deaf blind and improve their understanding. Good fella, he's in a bit of a sleepy mood. <laughs> but um, Colm can't um, see or hear at all. Totally blind and deaf. And he likes to feel around him, obviously. Um, he tends to be very active with the arms um, and gets a bit stiff at times, uh, obviously because he's, his legs um, tend to seize up on him a bit. So he sits a lot. Uh, or he prefers to sit a lot. Uh, but we tend to get him up as much as we can and uh, get him walking. But then he gets a bit stressed and he can only do it for a certain amount of time. Uh, but he loves uh, painting, drawing and stuff. And he's very, very good at his uh, sign language and symbols. Whereas if we make a mistake um, or things have to change, uh, we explain to him that it's changed but he doesn't like it. He likes to stick to things. He's a, he's a great, very intelligent and a great mind. Um, and uh, he's very, very good with all the other students. 
And Mary is too, aren't you? <laughs> She's the active lady of us all, or of them all. Uh, and Colm's great for uh, kneel times. He'll do a couple of things, uh, not too much, obviously standing, but um, sitting, he'll fold clothes, and he put them in the drawers, and uh, he's very, very independent in, in that way. But um, just in helping to walk, he ne he's co-active and he needs to be helped. His sense of smell is extremely acute, and I think that's probably common to all of them. It is, it's quite unbelievable. His communication with us, you know, he'll feel you and rub you, and we're never sure how much he knows us, but we're absolutely sure that he knows when someone is strange because he won't have anything to do with them. You know, he'll push them away at first, and if they change staff, you know, it takes a day or two for him to get familiar, and that would upset him. So he'll, you know, he'll just feel, and but he smells, especially when he's dressing, or he won't wear anyone else's clothes. I mean, if they don't smell right, he just discards them at once. There's no... Um, that's, that's his most highly developed sense, I think. And um, I wonder about the communication. It's a bit difficult, but he's very happy when he's at home and with the other children around, you know, and he, he, he likes just to lie and play sometimes in the big chair and everybody goes in and out will just, you know, t rumple his hair and say, how are you, you know, whatever, you know, and he, he laughs and giggles a lot to that. He's, he's, a, he's a very hearty laugh. A very um, dirty old man's laugh. We always say it's a really thick chuckle, and we're not sure at what. He's very definite. I mean, about the way you, when you're putting on his clothes, for example, right with, with the boots and the socks, he will not put on his shoes or boots unless the socks are on. There's just just no way. He just keep kicking them off. You won't you won't succeed. He is extremely strong, and he won't put on um, outer garments unless the inner ones are on first. You know, you won't be able to take any shortcuts. You know, that's that's just not a possibility. Because he, he expects, you know, his vest and his T-shirt and his shirt. Um, he, he, you just won't, you, he's very strong. You just won't succeed, you know, and, that's, and you'll just have to figure out what, what you've missed, you know, and th then you will realise. Because they don't have language as we know it, we have to represent our name, our ID, through symbolisation. So each one of us has an ID. We can use the same perfume every day, although, you know, that's not a very good idea because we'll all have changes of perfume. Um, somebody's idea could be their glasses. They'd feel their glasses before, you know, you have to go up to the deaf-blind person and you have to introduce yourself every time because it's absolutely dreadfully confusing if you just go up just and touch a person. Like, you know, you can imagine it yourself. Just close your eyes and put earmuffs on your ears and you realise, oh, who's that, you know, and then I've been touched on my back and all the rest. So it's very important to come up and have respect for the deaf-blind person and introduce yourself through your ID. Some, some men here have had beards and they would feel the beard and that would be a very natural ID of that person. I have a badge on my wrist and it's got um, a tactile piece of um, material on it. And I have that on my door for when they come to my office to visit me. I have that. So that it's all connected with Cora. And I've got a sign that's a C at my wrist, Cora. So wherever you have your idea, others have badges on their shoulder. And um, their first letter of their name w w would be the movement involved. So if... It's if your name is Colum and you put your hands into the C shape and you would touch the 
your, your badge. Other people have key rings on their waist. Other people would have different types of bracelets. Some of us have made our own bracelets, wooden beads or glass beads or whatever. And um, let me see, what other ideas have there been? Yeah, different belts too. So that's very, very important because otherwise, uh, you know, it's very confusing for the deafblind and it's so important to have the idea to build up your relationship. You know, you have to, each one has a different relationship with the people. So we all know each other's names and name is so important. So, and the deafblind themselves, I feel, I, when I go up to say Fiona, I say I'm Cora and you're Fiona, like hello Fiona, to give them the self-esteem that they have a name too. So Fiona is F to her mouth because she has this, she likes feeling her lip. So we also work on that, everything. Paul likes waving his hand in front of his eyes. So he puts P in his hands and his fingers in the shape of P and just waves them in front of his eye. This is Mark Nolan here. Uh, he's on a final frame and basically Mark likes this particular apparatus he spends he could spend anything up to maybe two quarters of an hour to an hour on it um basically he hangs upside down and there's no other way of putting it. he's he'd make a great gymnast actually you know uh, no fear at all he does similar type of things in uh, a residential setting he lies on stairs across stairs at the bottom of stairs balances his back the small of his back across stairs he's absolutely no fear at all you know He's got great, he's obviously great manual dexterity. He's, he's great, he's an elastic body, you know. He's, he's a mighty great gymnast, you know. It's quite fascinating to just observe it. That's right, we find, like, he's just watching him all the time doing it. Uh, and he's no hearing, you know, and he's got some partial sight, you know. But this is what, and uh, similar to this, he he also he also sits on a swing and he goes to great heights on the swing and uh, he's, not, he's not wearing himself, you know, you know, safety or danger, because he, he doesn't hold on to the side rails of the swing. He just lets free, and this this is something actually he gets great enjoyment of, and that's important here. Their happiness, you know.